can I talk now? <laughs> so my name is Geeta Prana. Most I know most everybody here. And I used to, uh, the reason I know most everyone here is because I've known Usha for quite a long time. And then when um, the Kali Temple started, the Swami can tell it better, but anyway, I started getting involved uh, with uh, big pujas. And that's where I met most everybody, right? And then in 2004, I was transferred to New York to become the person who's running uh, Vivekananda Retreat, which is uh, known in the Ramakrishna literature as Ridgely Manor, where Swami Vivekananda stayed the longest when he was in the United States. So it's a wonderful place. It's, it's in the country. It, everywhere you look, it's like a postcard. Uh, there's three huge houses, and uh, they haven't altered much since the day of Swami Vivekananda. So a lot of the furniture is the same. They haven't been modified in their rooms or anything. And so it's like being in the house where he was just yesterday. And so we give a lot of tours. We know all the legates that at least come around, and we hear stories constantly that maybe someday we'll end up the Swami Suhichananda Ji said, you have to write it down. <laughs> so I don't know. I'll try. Because the other thing about Ridgely is a huge amount of work. So as you can imagine, three huge houses that are all built in 1892. And 82 acres is a quite amount, a bit of work. Acres, yeah. So the 82 acres is the easy part. But anyway, it's mostly. Um, so... I can tell you a funny story of how I got there, um, and then we'll do a real satsang. The, um, the Swami that was there before me, I think almost everybody knew too, Swami Atmarupananda, and uh, was there about six years and basically burned out. And he was also quite ill. He had Lyme disease, and that helped him a lot burn out. And believe me, I know. Now, Ram Pradyas, you'll find out. You burn out fast when you have Lyme disease. So um, he asked for a leave of absence. So uh, my guru, Swami Swahananda, called me in and said, Acha, I want you to go to Ridgely to babysit. So I thought, sure, I'd been there just visiting. And so I went to Ridgely to babysit, to just stay in the house because there was nobody at, on the property at the time. And then I heard that Swami Atmarupananda wanted to go on pilgrimage to India, and I thought that would be good for him. And for us, that generally means a couple months minimum. So I emailed back to Swami Swahananda saying, will I be willing to stay here while he goes to India? But what I didn't know is that Swami Atmarupananda had resigned. <laughs> and Swami Swahananda had accepted his resignation. <laughs> And so when I got the email back from the Swami, he said, oh, well, actually, Swami Atmarupananda has resigned, and I like the idea of you being there. And I got it, and I thought, well, I've moved to New York. <laughs> and the truth is, I could have said no. But I thought, why would I do that? 
why would I pass up a chance to be in that place where Swami Vivekananda was and so beautiful and it's so rural and it's so nice. So I didn't say no. I did actually move there and I've been there ever since, since 2004. And occasionally I ask myself, why did I do this? <laughs> but mostly I don't. So I'm here back in L.A., uh, taking a break from a retreat from the retreat. So even people who run retreats need retreats from them. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise, we get a little too, uh, what? What would you say? We take it for granted and we forget. So... All right, so satsang, that means ordinarily, a real satsang means you ask me something, and I shall endeavor, I can't promise anything, to say something in return, or I might ask you to say something instead. We can, I can ask something from, I don't know, when was the last time you were here? Uh, 2012, whenever that was, yeah. In 2012, mm -hmm. you gave a similar satsang. Okay. Question. One of the points you made, I remember. Boy, you remember? I, I remember, and, and I think about it all the time. You, uh, uh, um, you made two points that I've thought about. One is that when somebody asked, well, like, how do you, like, we have such a high ideal. Sri Ramakrishna gave almost a superhuman ideal. Right? It's like, well, how do we get there? And he says, you live your way there. That point mm -hmm. I wanted to think about. And then other point that along the line is that some things you can't meditate away. You also have to live your way there. It's like certain things, you, your sadhana doesn't get rid of things. You have to live through those things. Mm -hmm. Something connected, if you can continue. Like yeah. one of the points, like with the three and a half hour thoughts, if you ran out of time, people, you, you were just beginning this point, and it mm -hmm. got too late, so you stopped. That um, definitely, um, well, I always take, I always take the position, and this is how I live my spiritual life, uh, that, um, from the Vedantic perspective, of course, that there's really nothing to get. Don't confuse that with, hey man, it's all cool and it's all perfect. That in the sense that um, you could put it in dualistic terms as you already have everything that you need. We already have everything already. But we don't see it that way, and that's not our experience. And to me, that's the maya. That uh, this little twist that makes us think, oh, I don't see that. The mother is right here, right now, at every moment. Or over there, maybe, but not here. Not, you know, I have to somehow earn her grace. I have to earn her love. I have to be good boy and girl, and she'll love me. But I think that's erroneous, that she, uh, her whole nature is ananda, that there is nothing that isn't, that she doesn't love. So the love is already there, and it's the basis of our very consciousness. And it shows through in our tiny way, in our tiny ways of loving that no matter how attached they are, it's still that Ananda being covered over as if with a layer of smoke and be looking like this, but it is that Ananda. So um, it's already there. But so the thing is, for me, is how do we erase this notion that it's not? 
that and and, and and I was just telling in another talk that I gave the very first thing I heard from any sadhu anywhere and I must I, mu I was quite young and I must have said something about I've been doing a lot of meditation and da 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 da, da and X happened and that sadhu said to me oh no don't ever think that you will get something by so much meditation and so much japa, because we're talking about the divine, who is not an effect of a cause. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It never is produced. You cannot produce God by so much japa, or God is not going to produce him or herself. That what it does, as metaphorically speaking, is place us right at the doorway. And it's up to the divine to open that door. And we can't open that door, and we don't have that power, but we do have the power to sit and wait and place ourselves in that doorway. This is all obviously metaphorical. And so all of our japam, all of our sadhana is going to make sure that we're in that doorway. And um, in a certain sense, the door is always open. But again, you know, Swami Vivekananda said, my favorite is Swami Vivekananda said um, in the Vedantic sense, um, it is we who have put our own hands over our own eyes and are crying, help me, help me, it's dark, right? We're doing this, but so how to do it? What do we do? We just have to get rid of these hands, not so easily done. And all our sadhana is for that, to remove our hands from our eyes, and then we'll see that... Uh, Metaphorically speaking, the mother has been there the whole time and actually is the basis in a funny way of us having the power to remove our hands at all. So, um, every time we choose consciously to place ourselves in the doorway, however way we see that, uh, we are making one step towards removing our hands. And each, I mean, we may remember and then the next minute forget, but we remembered that once. And every time we choose consciously like that, we're living our way into the Otherwise, we're going to get lived by vasanas, you know, the patterns in our mind, what auto-load into our head. We all know that, right? The apps that auto-load for us. <laughs> and we all have them. But it, we, this is the thing. What we want is, A, to get those apps from not auto-load, to stop those apps from auto-loading, and at the same time, create a much more powerful app that auto-loads on top of all the rest of them so that you don't see the rest of them or they become powerless that, and eventually useless. And so all of this is every time we make a conscious choice to sit in the doorway, and we can do that in any moment of our life, um, we are creating that app. We are living our way towards the goal that actually is already ours in every moment, but we have to talk this way. That um, because we live in a world of apparent separation, that uh, we have to use language. 
The one doesn't need language. She doesn't need language. What language do you need when everything is you? That language is always about something else. So um, we adopt all these language because we have separations and then our, our language is, you know, addicted to talking about separation. And, uh, but for her, there is no separation. What language, what thought is there? So, um, we use language like sitting in the doorway, but on a certain level, that's N.A. What doorway is there? It's all her. There's no door. So, but we, in our experience, there is. So I'm not a person that says it's all an illusion. But what I do say is what is the illusion is the separation, the sense of separation. Um, but I have a kind of a goofy little way you can examine maybe the way this auto-load program works. And to do this, you have to, and you can't think, well, anyway, you have to think of a dream that you had. Do you, everyone have recollection of dreams, more or less? You can't, you have to think of one in which what went on the dream, in the dream would be such a thing as when you woke up, you said, wow, I had the weirdest dream. In other words, the terms of the dream were kind of wacko by our waking standards. So in the one that I use as an example, and this actually was a dream that I had, was that I went into a big room like an auditorium and there was perfect chorus line of horses and zebras dancing on their back legs and I didn't find anything funny about that. <laughs> Nothing. It was like, oh yeah, okay, right? So this is the point. What we have to do is find a thing in your dream, something in a dream that you had, and the critical thing is not the object, but your acceptance of that lock, stock, and barrel without questioning the fact that it could it or couldn't possibly exist, right? No, zebras don't dance on their back legs ordinarily. It never occurs to... So many things happen in dreams. You know, you could be riding on a bicycle and it turns into a train and then turns into a plane and pretty soon you're, you know... And you never think twice about it. You just go along with the imagery, Yeah. So can you remember a dream like that? And the critical thing is to see, remember how we lock, stock, and barrel accepted, oh yeah, bicycle turns into a cart. Oh yeah. And, but when we woke up, we said, wow, that was weird. But not in the dream. In the dream, we just accepted, for the most part. You have to remember one where you accepted. And if you get that sense of accepting that without questioning, then we have to bring it here and say, we're doing that here too. We're accepting the terms without questioning. And the thing that makes it even more interesting is that all of us seem to share the same terms, so it seems all the more real that there is you and you and you and you and you and, you and me and her. Uh, to me, that's the Maya. That causes us not to ever, um, uh, to the, the terms of the dream are so real that we don't even think, oh yeah, okay, but in a dream, there are some things that sometimes happen. And one is that suddenly we become conscious in a dream and say, huh, I must be dreaming. 
and maybe the very next moment we totally forget that we were that conscious that one moment and we sink back into the dream. Or maybe we become conscious in a dream and we say, oh, this is a dream. That means I can do anything I want. You know, this is a dream. I can fly. Right? I don't know if that's called lucid dreaming, but uh, where we realize that we're dreaming and we can dictate the terms, but we're still inside that dream dictating terms. Or we can say, oh, and the dream is gone. So uh, all of those are wonderful metaphors for different ways that we live our way into an experience of divine consciousness, which is actually at the base of everything that we think and do an experience. So um, we can, I think most people have momentary glimpses and we see it and that's why we're sitting here instead of... uh, what, going to the movies or whatever else people do on Saturday night, that you're here at the temple and not fooling around somewhere else. Uh, in other words, it's important enough, that's already a glimpse right there because there's um, infinite choices, like the airline says. We understand you have infinite choices. The mother <laughs> says, here are the infinite choices. Which one will you choose? So... Um, Uh, we've already, to a certain extent, become a little aware because we're sitting here. And, um, or people have temporary, you know, uh, things that temporarily expanded consciousness and immediately sinks back. That's an experience that I know a lot of people have, that that kind of almost what we would call, um, what, uh, a little bit of realization, if there's such a thing. But karmic cause and effect immediately gets us back. Or the ego, the ego sense of ego pulls us back, even, sometimes even against will. I have a lot of friends who say, it's not even my conscious ego. It's this almost a, this will to be a me that pulls me back. So... Um, um, then some people become conscious, like Sri Ramakrishna's story about the people who came along to a party at, behind a wall, and uh, most of them climbed up and saw the, the joy on the other side and de- threw themselves across, and they didn't come back. But a, a couple of them said, oh, I want to go tell people about this. So some people can uh, live kind of as if in both worlds, in the world of separation and the world of non-separation, enough that they learn how to use, uh, that they can use language and their own experience to demonstrate to others. And then there's the people that jump over the wall, and the dream is gone. So... um, one thing that I feel is critical is uh, this notion that the divine, call it the mother, call it Brahman, call it anything you like, Krishna, um, is never, ever, ever subject to the law of cause and effect. And so much of what we think in the so much of the way that we think and so much of the way we perceive things is 
in a cause and effect kind of relationship that it's almost impossible to imagine that something is outside the law of cause and effect. So we think that God is the sum total of all causes and effects. That's not exactly right. That, uh, so you can always say, there's always more. That, uh, okay, we can say, yes, the sum total of all causes and effects, but always more. There's always more. It's not like um, um, uh, in the same way that cause and effect is the way that we live our life and lives. Um, and we feel, oh my gosh, I'm going to be bound forever. Uh, the divine can take anybody out of this anytime in our language. <coughs> That it won't be a matter of when I finish my perfect final 10,000th japam. It's more, the japam is for sitting, I mean, the japam in itself is the divine manifest, manifesting. But uh, um, what we want to do is just simply choose in every moment to face towards the divine, to the, towards the mother. And so we choose, the easy, I mean, the sort of easy things are doing things like puja, japam, the, the traditional things. The more difficult thing is to choose it in daily life. In the, you know, the rush of everything is much more difficult to choose. That, uh, um, because of all the auto-loaded programs. And... So that was a long explanation of the first part. What was the second part you said? You <laughs> uh, the term uh, that you cannot, uh, some things you can't meditate away. I don't know if you remember this term. Uh, yeah, I would need to know the context of what I said. People it. sometimes think, oh, you know, I have anger, I have love. Oh, and whoa, whoa, whoa. And, and, but yeah. no matter how much you meditate, how much job for pranayama, these things don't go, you have to, but oh, okay. your spiritual life is finished. You still have to. Yeah. Part of the I actually personally think the core of our spiritual life happens in daily life, and um, everything else goes as uh, to, as as kind of an added extra. But uh, if we cannot bring the same consciousness that we bring to our puja to daily life, uh, there's always going to be this huge kind of uh, disconnect. And what we're trying to do is connect in every moment. So, um, also, uh, so, mm, what we're trying to disconnect from is the auto load in the Yoga Sutras and many of the other scriptures describes what happens in our every moment of consciousness, normal consciousness, not spirit, you know, higher consciousness. And that is that um, our, it's interesting actually, our senses, and in the Indian style, in the Asian style, it's not that we're passively receiving all information to our eyes and our ears and what, that we actually send it out looking for things to perceive. And um, so then um, we perceive something and modern science has a wonderful thing that we need to remember that when we perceive something, we only say we look at something, we only look at it just enough until we have an identification for it.
and they then we stop looking. So um, eyes go out, see a form, say, Tripti, stop looking. Right now I know, I know it's her. And we stop. Do you ever really see past that, your own identification? In other words, do you ever really see that person or do we only see as much as we need to see for our own consciousness or whatever? And likewise hearing, likewise all of our senses. And when we do make an identification, I, simultaneously what happens is something on the spectrum of on this side, I love it, and on this side, I hate it, and, or neutral in the middle. And it could be anywhere, and it arises simultaneously when I say that's Tripti, or that's Swami Bhajanananda, or that's a rug, um, that also arises and you can, I have a way of you see, getting you to see this too. You probably know this. All right, so the easiest way to see this is to think of your very favorite, most favorite dessert. All right, you have to visualize it, smell it in your mind, whatever, and see if when you're visualizing it, smelling it, whatever you need to do, you feel a sense of, ha, yeah, right? Your mind is going towards it, right? You let, we have the sense of dessert, yeah. <laughs> and um, it's like almost magnetic. It goes, that sense of open willingness to go there is coming along with all the sense that, well, in this case, memory of our best, our dessert. If we saw it on the road or somebody brought it here or something, the same thing would happen. Ah, rasagolas. <laughs> so... Um, the, if we'd never tasted it before, we might get some random sense impressions, you know, it might smell good or whatever, but we won't have the same openness towards the whole thing. Okay, now, here's the opposite. Um, so you have to watch your mind. Uh, this is true in Cambodia and other parts of Southeast Asia, but particularly Cambodia during the killing fields, there was famine. And so people started to evolve a different kind of cuisine. And uh, one of the delicacies of the cuisine that has remained is roasted tarantulas. Ooh. Right. <laughs> so when you hear that, and if you, if you know what a tarantula is, um, your mind goes, Ugh, right? So these are kind of simple examples of what we do with every perception that we have. That we're going, Ugh, or we're going, and uh, that is what creates the bondage. That is what keeps us in uh, this sense of separation, this constant um, wanting to move towards the things where our mind and away from the things that... And of course, humans have an extra layer that uh, humans can imagine uh, any kinds of things that might happen or should happen or could have happened or she should have done that or I would have done that. And um, so we can fear things in the future. And in other words, fear is, I don't want that. It might happen, and I don't want that. Or, and we can also um, hanker after things in the future. 
uh, as in the um, Sanskrit word, kama, lust. I gotta have it. So, um, and when I have it, and I have f the feeling of, yeah, the next thing I want is more greed. And this is just how the mind works. This is how it was set up. This is part of the, this is how the mother makes it impossible to get out of the game almost. Because um, um, it's meant to be that way. As the Kata Upanishad said, the mind was created to do this, to move, to move outward. And so when it does, we can't feel bad about it. That it, it's just what it does. And uh, so we can't put an additional sense of aversion on the top of it. And this is why I said what I said, that um, often spiritual aspirants, they, we all think, well, this is good and this is bad. And when, when mind does something, and it will, that we feel is kind of not to our benefit, we think, bad, oh God, I'm so bad, I can't do this. And uh, what that, what's happening there is that um, there's a sense of aversion operating. An aversion app is auto-loaded. <laughs> and our mind is now in the service of that. And so we'll tell ourselves any old thing in, uh, to justify that. Uh, so I'm not good enough. I can't possibly do that. That's for sadhus. That's for Sri Ramakrishna. But it's not for me because I'm just a dumb little whoever. And uh, who is that telling that? Well, in one way, the mother is telling that to herself, which is almost absurd, but, you know, for the experience, hey. <laughs> so, um, we're the result. <laughs> and uh, that's the Maya. But the wonderful thing is that if we get in the habit, I feel, of noticing that almost all of our bondage comes from the stories of attraction and aversion that we tell. Uh, we can consciously choose to go against them. But um, we have to be aware of them. And that's why I said just overriding them doesn't work. Meditation has its purpose. But uh, in addition... We have to know kind of the way our mind, the, uh, the apps that auto-load for us, and they won't all be the same. You know, it's uh, the, the, the saying, rosy-colored glasses, that uh, there's a Sanskrit word, vasana, which uh, samskara, vasana, samskara is kind of like a, the result of a past action that gets kind of stored with us. So if I have the samskara of being burnt by fire, I'm going to remember that the next time I see fire. Hopefully. And, um, but um, all these little samskaras, amongst the, we could say there is also patterns of organizing. The mind organizes patterns in a way that we literally see the world according to that pattern, the vasana, the habitual way of looking. Vasana, one of the meanings of vasana is to dwell, the things that dwell with us. So maybe we look at the world in terms of it's not a safe place and something bad might happen, right? That's really common. 
I, the plane might crash. There might be an earthquake and I'll be inundated by a tsunami. Um, I might not get to do, uh, you know, some, I might get robbed if I walk down the street. I got a, uh, and so pretty, that kind of habitual way of looking becomes like a pair of glasses. And so that all, everything that I experience is filtered through that vasana. In fact, that is me. Or uh, what's another one? Or it's Mark Twain's, I lived through many catastrophes in my life, some of which actually happened. <laughs> so uh, um, there, there is also, um, oh, a friend of mine coined this, and it's a wonderful one. Foremost authority. I am the foremost authority. So if you try, if someone else, uh, Ambikananda, comes along and says, well, it's X, I'll say no, it's Y. And uh, it won't be because I actually know, it will be because that vasana is running my mind. I have to be the one that knows. And, but I'm not aware of that consciously. But it creates all sorts of suffering for me because it means that everybody is a potential competitor. And um, so what would that be? That would be uh, a little bit of aversion. So I can't ever really truly meet somebody because they're always a potential source of aver you know, a aversion. Or say I only am happy when I get things. And of course, everything is a thing. And so if I collect people or, you know, the classic is the guys who go through the women, the women go through the men. And what is it? It's just about collecting. Have a collector set. But, uh, um, in other words, I have an acquiring tendency. Now, here's the deal. Part, I think, part of the whole of the way Maya works is that we all have an acquiring tendency. And what we want to acquire is the next moment that uh, the Buddhists have a wonderful terminology for this. It's called a deluded attitude towards a transitory network. <laughs> <laughs> we are the transitory network that's changing in every moment, but we believe that somehow we're solid. And uh, that we, you know, even, the mo even modern science says, well, we're not really solid. But, yeah, me. And uh, the idea here in, is in the same way as um, the yogic notion is that we as living beings, as jivas, as sentient beings, literally are throwing our sense of self and mind into a next moment. We're addicted. We're looking for the next moment. That because we live in this apparent space and time, and uh, what is there is the next moment. So we project ourselves into the next moment and we project um, with all of our vasanas intact so that the whole of us could be at the same event and each one of us would experience it slightly differently. Uh, but we would definitely suffer according to our own vasanas. Um, some of us say if it was something, what, an earthquake? Some of us would suffer more than others simply by uh, what auto 
auto-loaded apps we had. What stories are we telling ourselves? So this is where the work of taking our hands away from our eyes goes. That um, see, okay, what app has the mind auto-loaded? Because once we see it, that's 80% of the battle. Because right now, the majority of the apps are auto-loading and we're not even aware of it. It's just who we are. That's me. Well, of course, I'm going to make sure that I'm safe. Um, the sense of me being me. The sense of me being a small little being in an infinite universe. Um, we actually like that in a strange sort of way because it's auto-programmed by her. That, uh, um, that it's the, this is the Maya. We like Ma to measure. That Sanskrit root Ma means to measure. And that's what everything is. Language is measuring. Thinking is measuring. Everything we do is measuring. And we love it. So there's nothing wrong with measuring, I think, I feel, but we have to measure consciously. And right now, our auto-loaded apps are doing it for the most part for us. So every time we catch ourselves, say at work, uh, reacting to something that somebody said, even though we told ourselves, I am not going to do this, we did it anyway. Um, even if we catch ourselves too late, that's still wonderful. That once we catch what we're doing, if, we, if you think about it, when you catch yourself, you've seen the auto-load. And once we can get hold of one auto-load, then the rest become a matter of, oh, okay, this one, yes, the rest one, I can do that too. And it won't be perfect ever because we're not interested in being perfect. We're not interested in making our samsara perfect, hopefully, you know, or comfortable. That we could, but we'll never get there because perfect is another kind of a measurement that in reality doesn't exist. So um, perfect for the most part means we knock ourselves over the head with this name perfect because we'll never be it when actually we already are but not in our daily auto-loaded self. I don't want to come across as, uh, what do they call that? There's a certain kind of Advaita Vedantins that believe that, well, since it's all perfect, then we don't need to do anything because it's perfect and just how it is. And um, that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that perfection, um, there's a metaphysical kind of a meaning for perfection, but we often mistake it for our common notion of perfection and then say, well, you know, I'm very far from that. No, Swami Vivekananda say, says we have to base our whole sadhana on the notion, yes, I am. I am that. I am perfect. And... Um, then go on from there. But you know, your little mind goes here and there and everything. And then we won't create... Um, one, I think the worst thing blocking devotees, every, all of us, is not having confidence. That if I could, of all the years that I've been doing this, people 
um, somehow we think, somehow I can't do this. I'm a householder, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm too old, I'm a yet, and everyone says, if you don't realize God before you're 30, you're out. <laughs> so um, there are so many reasons, and so we kind of lose this confidence that we, can, we, um, that we particularly can do this. And uh, it, I think the best antidote for that is this, Swami Vivekananda is saying, Who's holding our own hands before our own eyes and saying, I can't do it? That we are that and we're saying, I can't do it. Again, she's playing games. That, uh, so we have to do things that build our confidence. And so we use the traditional sadhanas to make this overriding program and at the same time, use our daily life to notice where we're not playing that program. And, to, and as we do that, what we're doing is tra training our concentration. Because it takes a certain amount of mindfulness and concentration to see when we're um, going in, what our mind is doing. On the other hand, we don't want to get um, narcissistic about it and start getting this is another way that mind can get us that it can turn our whole um, this is by the way is called viveka vichara um, viveka discrimination vichara self-examination that um, we need to ask ourselves always this little story that I'm telling myself in my head is it true Because most of the time it's not. Ambikananda um, should have gotten up this morning. Oh, what? Or whatever. Because, and he's such a bad sadhu because he should get up and da 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 da. And that, oh, and look at this, and I can't possibly have. I mean, who exactly is suffering here? Is it him? No, it's me. I'm telling all this stuff to myself. And anyway, what Ambikananda does or doesn't do isn't my business. And uh, so I'm using the poor victim of my talk, but <laughs> um, um, I'm using that, but we do that all the time. That should have happened. I'm angry because she should have X. Well, she didn't. So, but I'm angry. Where is the suffering? Is it because of that person? No, it's because of what I'm telling myself. So that's how we get deluded. That, um, that's where we get pulled in, and that's where the apps auto-load. And as we are more mindful of the way that mind does this, we'll see it, and 10 times we'll fail to get it, and the 11th time we'll get it. And then the next 10 times we'll fail to get it again. And the 11th time we'll get it. And as uh, many sadhus have said, that's what spiritual life is, falling down and getting back up again. It's not about the high ecstasies and the wonderful, um, those keep us going, but the real spiritual life is in falling down and getting back up. And every time we get back up, we rise up victorious. So we may not feel like that, but every time we say, uh-uh, we're not playing that up. Um, that's a huge step in the right direction.
because in my world, the mother is already giving us everything that we need. In other words, um, or to say in metaphorically, the mother is already standing right in front of us going, that uh, in other words, um, the grace is always there. That, uh, as Shri Ramakrishna said, the wind of grace is always blowing. It's always there. And it's not generally there. That, um, uh, you know, it's not like, oh, well, there's this grace blowing in the wind somewhere, and all I have to do is somehow get onto it. That I think it's personal, personally. Um, I think the grace is meant for each and every one. So it's not like that we have to tap into um, some kind of generalized grace. I think that grace is meant individually. Does that make sense? That, in other words, um, there's not just the mother's grace showering around. It's like the mother's grace for Tripti, the mother's grace for Swami Bhajanananda, the, Swam, the mother's grace for Ram Priyadas. In other words, it's meant for me, we have to think about it that way. That I don't have to earn some generalized grace, it's right meant for me. In other words, it's like my mother wants me and is making everything that possible for me and is actually right there, as Sri Ramakrishna said, closer to us than our own breath and uh, not just kind of some generalized mother somewhere else. That right here, right now, in every moment, she is there for us, specifically. And not, oh, if I'm a good enough boy, maybe I'll be spiritual enough. Um, we, we can talk like that, but um, she's already here. And so we sit in a place like this that appears to be in a house or a temple, and we appear to be sitting here, all so many devotees, and she appears to be there in a form. I mean, you think about the amazingness of that, that uh, in the infinity of possibilities, this is the one we experience. And truly, that if it's not infinite, it isn't the divine, that so that in, in the affinity of possibilities, this possibility manifests and we perceive it like this, the mother right here. And uh, that's grace. The, and not to mention, but we have to be careful that as, you know, as well as the mother right here, the mother right here, the mother everywhere, the mother is always opening the door for us. And it doesn't mean that she's going to make it what we would call easy. That we like things to be pleasant and easy because we like that end of the spectrum better than we like this one. You know, we have aversion for aversion. <laughs> so um, we want it to be easy. We have this notion, especially in the United States, that everything should be comfortable, easy, and fun. So, but life isn't like that. And uh, I'm sure... Everyone here could say uh, it's sometimes the really challenging things where we learn the most. And um, so, but in the, am I going on too long? No, continue. 
in okay in the spectrum of um, um, what was I going to say? No, I lost it. Okay, I lost it. Ask me something. <laughs> <laughs> I can keep going if you want. I just have to pick up the line again. Uh, okay. Um, Takor talks so much of, it, I think it kind of goes along with the first part of Maharaja's mm -hmm. question, but um, Takor talks so much about um, longing. Mm. And um, even Holy Mother says, you know, one should repeat the name as, the, as like the ticking of a clock, and then, and then in another place she says, you know, you don't want to overheat your brain mm -hmm. type thing. So you know, um, but I think there's like a very fine line between like longing and like pushing, <laughs> and like you know, oh, and I, could you just maybe if I think I understand what you're meaning. Um, well, I think it goes along with the, you know, I'm going to do so many mantras and then yeah. I hit the jackpot. Yeah. 700 million California lottery. Yeah, thing. yeah. Won the big lottery. Also, um, yeah, Sri Ramakrishna said, I've practiced all these things. I practiced everything. You know, as he, in his life, he practiced most of the major sadhanas of the Indian traditions and a few of other religious traditions too. And not only did he practice them, he took them to the most extreme possibility that you could. And um, some of them very complicated kinds of sadhanas, like the tantric sadhanas. And uh, he said, I've practiced them, and I pretty basically distilled it to what you need is longing. That they all boil down to what's really critical here is longing. And longing is that desire... Uh, to set your sail, that uh, otherwise we'll just go on with the auto load. But um, the, in the Vedantic tradition and many other traditions, uh, there's the notion that there's the kinds of experiences that take us away, the, the avidya maya, that take us back into the dream and lock us there. And by the way, when we say dream, I don't mean that it's not real. It has its dream-like existence. But a, uh, it's an appearance, but it's not unreal, in my opinion. So um, it's, it's a dream appearance. It's a conventional appearance, and it works in cause and effect. This is how we... So our sadhana has to be based to a certain extent in cause and effect, and then also to transcend that whole thing. Anyway, so we use longing as the thing that hooks us into... Um, we're using it as a desire, as against desires that take us away. So those desires that will pull us back into the dream are called avidya maya. Avidya meaning the not knowing. The maya of not knowing, not knowing what, not knowing what is our true nature, that we are that. We are, she is playing as us. And um, so we use vidya maya as kind of the counterweight to that. So vidya maya is we use desire too. And this kind of desire takes us towards the divine.
So we're still using desire, but this desire is to counteract the one that takes us away. And, uh, but what happens is we can, um, the whole program that automatically plays always includes a hunkara in it, the eye maker. And uh, it likes to co-opt everything that we do. And so, and ahankara is created out of all the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. I am a sadhu, I am a this, I am a that, I am good at this, I am not so good at this, I am a teacher, I am a whatever. Those are what go into this notion of me. And all the stories that are, you know, with our interrelationships with the other beings and our parents and our countless past existences. Uh, so that notion of I is pretty strong. So it will co-opt everything. So pretty soon, um, longing gets, could get co-opted by this sense of I is like, oh, if a little bit is good, more is better because I am going to do it. And so then we're, instead of, uh, um, if our teacher says, let's do 100, and you should do 108 uh, mantras, uh, we think 108,000 is better. <laughs> <laughs> because I am a super devotee. And, or, or I want to get there faster. Well, where is faster when we are already that? Or, and just, or even, even more subtle that you can barely know that ahankara is starting to co-opt our sadhana. Um, so we push. And then there's the other notion that's correct, where there a little austerity. We need to go against the notion of wanting to be, what, happy, comfortable, and have fun experiences because we're addicted to that. I mean, mind is addicted. It goes towards that. It just does. Addicted is kind of a heavy word that it's just the way the machine works. That, and uh, so mind goes that way. So what we want to do is start to get it not so, it won't go in that direction. So we practice being a little not going there. And what um, famously is called austere. And austere can be something different for everybody. Mm -hmm. That for one person, austere can be, um, what? One person's austerity is easy peasy for somebody else. That if, if the austerity is getting up in the early in the morning, easy peasy for me. I can easily get up at 2 a.m., no problem. But get me to stay up until 2 a.m., forget it. And so even things like that, um, where does our mind get caught? The austerity is to let it not go there. And of course, the most simple explanations come from food. But it's much more complicated than that because mind has a lot of different ways it goes towards something. But food is a good example that um, we go to what some donut shop, or some place we like, and, and we intend not to buy, we, or maybe we're going to buy one, we walk out of there with five. So the austerity would be, okay, maybe today we're only going to buy one. Or maybe today we're going to walk by it. 
Or maybe we're going to notice that our mind is fixed in on that. And, or even better, on the other side, austerity is also not going in the direction where our mind does not want to go towards fears. So, and I can give you an example of a tiny little way to go against that. Um, where we live in New York, there's uh, the Catskill Mountains. And there is a resort there, a very beautiful resort that I think probably Swami Vivekananda visited. And you walk along the roads and they have these overlooks that are built out over these canyons. And they're very high up. And uh, the other sister that's at Ridgely and I were walking one day and we saw the overhang and we said, nope, and kept walking. We walked about five steps. We stopped. We looked at each other and said, we have to go back. In other words, <laughs> let's go against the aversion to walking out there. And so that's what we did. That it's a tiny little thing. But um, um, people avoid other people through aversion or fear. Uh, so the austerity would there would be to notice that and maybe approach them. Uh, in other words, it's, or, um, there's so many ways to practice austerity, but the idea here is, what are we doing? We're stopping the natural movement of the mind back and forth, which it likes to do. And, uh, um, each person has to know, I mean, every week can class them, and Sri Ramakrishna, to, uh, classify them, uh, you know, Bengali is a language like uh, in, uh, American English, at any rate, that likes uh, uh, rhyming alliterations and rhymes. And so, hurry, hurry, But um, higgledy piggledy. I mean, we like them too. And so, Sri Krishna often spoke like that: things that are in rhymes, things that are in alliterations, because we remember those things. And uh, so he had thrown all of this kind of uh, tendency into two words, kamini kanchana, which um, unfortunately got poetically uh, translated uh, in another era, in the 30s, was it the 30s? I think so, 1930s, into woman in gold, which has, of course, alienated a whole generation of women in the West from the to the gospel in Shram Krishna, but it wasn't meant like that. That um, kama is that tendency of mind to go, gotta have it. And even we know how it is, and you can uh, think about the first time you ever had a crush on anybody. Mind goes even if you don't want it. It's like ah, it's sure, <laughs> right? And you spend hours on the phone talking about nothing kind of thing because mind is... So uh, that's that, that tendency of mind. And, and what are we doing? We're looking for all our happiness in that direction. Oh, this is like it. He or she or whatever we think. And uh, not only that, the Bhagavad Gita tells us how it works. In other words, we put our mind on that, and what happens is, oh boy, the more we put our mind on it, the more it becomes important to us, and uh, sangat sangjayate, uh, uh, gotta have it. 
Kama, uh, and if we don't, aversion arises. Okay, anything that gets in the way of us having, having that, and uh, let's face it, half of human relationships happen when this happens. This person is in the way of me having that one. Oh boy. I mean, if you analyze it, that's what it is. So anger, anger arises. Uh, uh, then what happens is memory starts functioning in service of that, right? Okay, so now I'm angry at Swami Ambikananda, and so <laughs> all his past, I'm going to read him a laundry list of all his past sins. You did this, and you did that. In other words, mind is in service of now that anger that's arisen. And um, so we forget all the wonderful things that he's done now, and I'm only remembering, the, you know, what a jerk. That, uh, um, this is what mind does. It plasters over, because there, there's, in everything, there's in, infinite possibilities for uh, good things, pleasant things, and infinite possibilities for bad ones. If we desire something, we mask over the undesirable ones. If we don't want something, we mask over the good ones. In other words, um, uh, memory is in service. And um, when memory comes in service of that, there's no buddhi, buddhi nasha. Um, there's no real uh, conscious choosing. Buddhi can't make a choice. Buddhi is that function of mind that makes the choice, that makes what we call, you can call it judgment, but it basically is a choice, a value judgment. But if buddhi has already not got all the information because it's all kind of conveniently forgotten, how is buddhi going to make that choice? And uh, so it makes the choice that's convenient, uh, the one that's auto-loaded. Auto and then what happens? Pranashiti. Oops. No mind at all. Now we're just functioning on auto. So what we want to do is through viveka, vichara, practicing a little bit of... Uh, what uh, restraint in some way or another, either from going to the things that we don't like. Um, that's what is called uh, the, the, the bad word, um, renunciation. People hate that word, vairagyam. Um, it doesn't mean necessarily giving up. It means that we are going to see that our mind is going there and that we're being fooled over there. And being able to drop our constant preoccupation with either going that, but um, we have to drop it. Because if we don't, uh, it will just keep doing that. That's what it does. So um, all of these things work together. There's not one formula fits all. That, and also, there's not one formula fits one for one's whole life. It will change. You know, it changes as life goes on and our understanding changes. So, but what always needs to be there, as Ram Priyadas has uh, said, is longing. Longing is what makes it, is what uh, fixes us, what sets our sail. So, um, at the same time, remembering longing for what? Yes, longing for the divine, but uh, longing for the end of our non-seeing. 
that uh, the divine is with us all the time. So if we only pay attention to messing around with the way our mind works, then that's not going to work very well. Because what we're doing is trying to perfect our samsara this way. I'm going to make myself into a good mind. But what we want to do is move over the whole thing. We want to, the, the, the metaphor here is if you have this, uh, the, if uh, um, avidya is the root of the tree and ahankara is the trunk and mind moving towards what they call ragandvesha and abhinivesha, which means, ah, I love doing this, are the limbs of the tree. What happens if you knock down limbs to a tree? They grow back. What happens if you cut it off at the trunk? Most trees will grow back. So what you have to do is get it at the root. And the root is avidya. And so that's why it's much more important to do the things that create um, the overriding program. In other words, putting 80% of our time into remembering the divine in whatever way that we do. And putting the rest of the time into... Uh, um, noticing, being mindful of the way our mind works, um, and remembering that, yes, we can do it. And it's an, almost an absurdity to say that we can't because we already have, that we are that, how can we not do it? That, um, to remember that, it's a little piece of separation maya generated absurdity say no 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 i can't possibly just um, it's like no 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 i can't possibly be a human that uh we're saying the exact thing no 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 i can't possibly realize the divine in whatever way even if we have the idea that the, um, a more a less advaitic view it's still the same so um I don't have to earn the mother's love. I don't have to be good enough. Uh, all those things are in samsara. It's language of samsara. But we have to use it. But we can't let this ahankara co-opted. Um, then um, um, to realize that in a certain way, the problem with Vedanta, I feel, is that it makes everybody feel like they're a mistake. I think I said this last time I was here. <laughs> I right? <laughs> that somehow we feel like that we're li living in an unmitigated kind of goof, a cosmic curse of some sort and uh, samsara and let me out of it. And, uh, but I feel that it's rather the opposite that everyone is literally an emanation, you can say an emanation or whatever, created by her, right? So it's not like, oops, I just accidentally created Bhajanananda. <laughs> no, it's a deliberate creation. So our lives are not curses, they are gifts. And even though they may be, ex what we feel is, uh, difficult. I wonder if she feels that. That uh, um, if you 
were, if you were, uh, here we go, wading into goofy language. <laughs> if you could see what we see as cause and effect all in one instant, then you would know the beginning and the end. In other words, the, uh, the sort, let's just say the creation of each jiva all the way up to its liberation in one. And you would know that everything that jiva experienced was exactly perfect. That, um, and at the same time, uh, in a certain way, living the life of that jiva as well. I mean, that's the maya of it. That it's not like she's saying, oh, well, now, you boys, you have your own life. No, she lives through us, and then we live through her, actually, more. That uh, the problem is, of course, in that one moment, she is not fooled, but we are. That's her doing. So our life is a gift. It is not a curse. It is not some mistake of maha maya. Uh, um, it's not a mistake. It's deliberate. And I feel that... Uh, that is extremely uh, beneficial for our, to, for our spiritual life to remember that. That, yes, she deliberately created me. And as a last thing, also, that means that um, my liberation, my salvation, my enlightenment, my realization uh, is assured that I can't see it because because of Mahamaya we're living in a linear minute by minute by minute by minute by minute. But and in a certain way I'm already there, but I'm not. So in every moment our life unfolds as she um, arranges it, I guess you could say. But there's always something more. That she, that's why they say this mother in particular are full of surprises. That the notion of Maha, uh, Mahakali is that she's a little bit crazy, a little bit wild. <laughs> and why? Because it's not subject. She's not subject to anything. That's why wild hair, wild no clothes, wild this, wild that. That she's wild. That not, she's not tied down. She's never tied down. The um, cause and effect is just something we experience, but she's always way more than that, and she can, in a second, any inevitability. So, no, I'm not a, you didn't ask me this question, but I personally <laughs> say I'm not a believer in predestination. That um, it, I think that people's karma... Uh, karma is a lot more the way I, the way I see it is a lot more complicated than just here I am and it, 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 that all jivas, all sentient beings are interconnected and all act and have and um, each are infinitely acting and all those infinite actions are intertwined with all the rest and so um, the whole thing moves kind of like a fractal pattern and so um, what may seem inevitable is dependent on so many infinite causes and effects we can't possibly know. And even then, she can cut it all. 
that is, so um, we may think we got to buy the mother with uh, what several billion japam, but she could decide tomorrow this one's out for no reason. So and the and you know, the, the stories are filled with those stories. So um, that's one way to gain confidence that it's critical, 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 critical for spiritual life to tell yourself, I can do this, and I will do this now, not in some next life. I will do this now in the middle of my chaotic life with all my kids and my job and my, um, that's not necessarily any hampering. Um, I go to my work, I'm too busy, I'm too busy, how can I possibly, well, um, I have to invent little ways, and in addition to my regular, if I do regular sadhana, one Swami of the Ramakrishna Mission, Swami Bhajananandaji, not this one, um, has always told people, you need to find a sadhana, a spiritual practice that you love, in addition to the, to the regular ones, because meditation is not always easy. And people say, oh, no, I can't meditate. And then they give up on the whole thing. Right? I mean, how can you meditate if you have two teenage kids blasting uh, their music and whatever they do? But um, if you find some, and it has to be something that you individually love. If it's music, if it's uh, your car, you know, polishing your car, if it's art, whatever it is, if you love it, something your mind automatically thinks, gee, I, like hiking, um, so something you love, something that your mind will automatically move towards, if you find a way to spiritualize that, then that's your alternative sadhana. So that when the other ones, you say, oh, it's too dry, I, uh, I just mechanically... Uh, and um, on those days, you can move to the other one. If you spiritualize something that you love, then you're not necessarily saying, well, I can't meditate, so I have to give the whole thing up. Okay, today, mind isn't going to go there very well. Oh, and that's the other thing. Um, the sense of me can co-opt any kind of sadhana. So um, what happens often for people who meditate, and it definitely happens in the kirtan crowd, is we have a good, what we would say, good meditation, right? Mind actually calms down and we have a wonderful meditation and what happens next? Care to guess? The next time we sit down, we try to go there again. And maybe that's not the day the mind is going to go there. And so, in fact, just trying to go there again is already an uh, open mouth, already mistake. But anyway, it's already scattered your mind. We're attached. We've got a, our sense of attachment onto our meditation. Or we sit down and say, I should be able to do this. Well, what story is that we're telling ourselves? That all we need to do is sit there and be present and focus our mind as best we can. And when it goes out, because that's what it does, we bring it back. And when some days it will be wonderful and some days it won't. 
and on the days and for many days in a row it might not and especially if our life is a little bit busy or chaotic and but it's no reason to give those things up but that's the time you need to have another sadhana that you your mind can easily do and spiritualize some you know riding a bike taking your kid to school uh making coffee in the morning if we find a way to spiritualize that then we're using our longing we're attaching our longing to every moment of our life and not just the ones that we've set apart for spiritual life i feel that um doing some kind of traditional sadhana is wonderful and it has its own vibration and swami vivekananda said you know there's as if many bandwidths out there just like radios you can tune in to the bandwidth, that you can send your mind onto a bandwidth. And so all the violent kind of stuff in the world as if creates a bandwidth, and when you watch it on TV, that's where you're sending your mind, even if you don't think so. Or uh, you can put your mind into the bandwidth of the holy ones, which is kind of what you do when you come to a temple. And uh, so um, the sadhanas are like the transmitter in a certain way that you go on that bandwidth to the, to the, the bandwidth where all others, uh, one Swami Swami Shraddhananda used to say emphatically, when you go to a temple or any kind of place where spiritual practices have been done, you have to remember that our notion of linear time is in the dream. And so therefore, all the sadhus and holy people that have ever practiced there in the past are there now and are, will be there in the future, are in a sense there right now. And so when you go into a place, you have to remember that and connect. When you connect onto that bandwidth, you're not just connecting onto the available sadhus in 2020, 2016, right? You're connecting into the bandwidth of all that ever have been, are, and will be. And uh, so the traditional, the japam, that's what that's for. It's not for getting realization. And it's not for winning the mother's love. It's for getting the divine vibration as if onto the divine bandwidth. That is actually part of our very experience all the time, but we don't see it. That it's the basis. It's what lights up our thoughts. You know, all our daily thoughts of, gee, I wonder if I turn my stove off. <laughs> um, the re we can think that because of the other bandwidth, because that divine light is the basis of our very notion of our little self. And uh, if it weren't there, pralaya, that it will be, you know, there wouldn't be anything. So we can do it. Yes, we can, because we already have in a certain sense. And, um, or we can say, um, yes, the mother is standing there with the door open and saying, how long will this take? <laughs> so um, there's a question back there. Should I ask, should I entertain it? What time is it? Okay. Yeah. It's a quick question. What do you mean by spiritualizing your activities? What do I mean? Yeah. You mean for me? Okay. For you. What are you, what are you, what are you engaging us to do? 
but you have to find it for yourself that um, it, I do a lot of just small things. Oh, okay. So I can get up in the morning and I can say, let me have my coffee without even thinking about it. All right. Beeline coffee. And, and everyone here knows that I do that. <laughs> so, but I can also say, okay, uh, the coffee comes from, I mean, the coffee is part of the divine and I will offer the cup of coffee before I actually drink it to the divine. In other words, the minute I put my hand in any sort of little way, I have a friend who, when he takes a shower, invokes the seven holy rivers. I have a friend who will not put a piece of toast in a toaster without a mantra. Um, I have a friend who never goes up a uh, stairs. You always see her standing at the bottom of the stairs because she has trained her mind to remember the divine before she goes up the stairs. Um, then there's all kinds of... Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh is the king of mindfulness training but you know when the phone rings instead of running to catch it stopping and say uh, making some kind of offering whatever and it's at, it seems silly but every time you do that you're going against the pattern you're auto loading that and we go against the pattern when we come to a place like this or when we meditate or we try to go against the pattern but I feel that um, it's a false dichotomy. I feel that this uh, world, this notion worldly and holy is non-starter. It's another language that has a purpose, but it doesn't actually have a, a corresponding object that goes with it. That we call something worldly to win when we say that, oh, we're being distracted. And we call something holy when we're not being distracted. But um, the same thing could either distract or not. So uh, what we need to do is take the things that we would ordinarily call holy, full, fine, they're no problem as long as our ego is not involved in them. But the problem for us is our daily life, that we don't remember the divine ever because it's just too chaotic and, and busy. So we want to remove the notion unholy from that because that is the majority of our life. And uh, yeah, what we're doing basically is giving away, um, if we practice for one hour and the other 23, the other 23 hours, we're giving away to auto load mm -hmm. so and then we say I can't do it so um, we want to find a way in the midst of you know we drop our kids off at school we think you know blah, blah, blah. and at first it seems stupid really I can tell you from experience it seems unreal it seems pretend but what we're doing is we're doing practicing it over and over again till it arises naturally and we don't have to think about it anymore so um that um a lot of what i do is walking in nature that now i don't even have to think it's just 
it uh, the program auto loads this is nothing other than walking in the middle of you know this is the self this is the mother and uh um it's not really solid it only appears solid and uh um all the you know my mind is sorting everything but it really is only her uh that kind of thing seems uh almost unreal at first but it becomes part of your consciousness it just is there auto loaded as much as i want that coffee so um every moment that we can and then of course the most difficult moments are the ones we're trying to push away right no or actually the truth is the most difficult moments is when our hand goes yes that we don't even see it if we suffer we want to we want to find a reason. And that's why people often turn to spiritual life when they've been suffering. But when they're having a good time, you never see them. That, um, because we automatically just grab to the thing that we love. I mean, that we want, not the thing that we love. And we don't even stop to think, should I do this? We just did it. And so, but we don't want to take the thing that we don't want. And so we start philosophizing we got to find a reason not to take it. And this is good because um, it gives us a chance to choose, even if in the midst of our aversion. So when life is challenging, that's when we need to really have some of these other things in place. So um, we can just understand. One time I said to my teacher, um, I think being on such and such, I don't know how many people have been on committees here. How many people have been on committees? You know what working with committee can be like? <laughs> that it really can be a, a, a difficult to say the least. And so I was on a committee and it was a difficult committee. And it was the kind of committee where some of the members were sabotaging other, you know, some of the projects. And so I said to my teacher, I think this committee is, I made the stupid mistake of telling him, I think this committee is um, um, wrecking my spiritual life or something like that. I can't remember exactly. And, um, he said two things, but one of them, because of this Garawa cloth, he, he, I, I had not one nanosecond had before I had stopped, and he said, you have no life! <laughs> Meaning, I gave it up. And so I, what comes my way is what the Divine Mother means for me to have. That's my life. If it's committees, that's it. How could I? It's not wrecking any life. But he also meant life is not only up. We think it is and we think it should be like that. But if you want to be a jiva, and if you want to use jivahood to return to divinity you have to accept the other side too. That the nature of life is both up and down. And it's just a story, a fairy story that we're telling to think that it should be always up. And so we can't stop things, challenging things from happening. But what we can do is the, stopping the auto-load stories about those challenging things that cause the real suffering in our mind. You know, we can't stop it if our parents die or our children are sick. But we can stop the secondary suffering by what we're telling ourselves about it. It shouldn't have happened. They shouldn't. Why should this happen? That, that's where the real suffering is. You know, our child may be actually physically suffering, 
but our suffering, we're not physically suffering, we're mentally suffering. And does it help our child if we're mentally suffering? Does it help their physical suffering? Not necessarily. In fact, it might be better off if we weren't and we could help them better. So, but we don't want to, anyway. Um, so yes, in the middle of every day, and what happens is, as we do this, our little experience expands and we hardly maybe even don't know. And that's why Swami Vivekananda and many of the other people said, how do you tell if you're making spiritual practice? Well, you're becoming kinder. You're becoming less reactive. I'm becoming more cheerful. Uh, those are the things, not I am, you know, the heavens are opening up and the Divine Mother <laughs> is ascending. And uh, it's a permanent state that spiritual experiences, let's say visions, dreams, they have a beginning in time and they have an end in time. Right? Dreams have a beginning, they have an end. Um, but expanding consciousness always stays that way. And what, what was often is called realization. That's the difference between a spiritual experience, like a vision or a dream, and the realization that people are talking about. That visions and dreams are still in this samsara. They may be wonderful, temporarily removed, but they have a beginning, they have an end. But our consciousness, when it expands, does not go back. It's eternal. So... Um, we may not, I mean, eventually we will, but even if we believe we're not making progress, we are. And uh, we're trying to measure something that's immeasurable. You know, with our little measuring consciousness, we want to know what our progress is. But those are all notions born in the dream. Our consciousness is expanding, and one day we'll realize that we are not as reactive as we used to be. And then the next thing that happens is that our consciousness expands and we start realizing, oh, this is why our teachers did what they did, right? I don't know why she accepted all these people. Couldn't she see they were jerks? She really didn't see the faults in others. And then one day we realize, oh, oh. In other words, we've lived our way into that experience and it's no longer a mystery to us. We, it, suddenly, and it opens up, oh, I get it. Because now that's our experience too. And um, so it doesn't need words to explain anymore. And so ultimately we do that until one day this notion I just doesn't hold on anymore. And that's what Vedanta, like uh, many schools are sudden, you know, it takes the light a match, the room is, uh, the darkness is gone in a second. But in reality, that is happening in every moment. We try. When we think that we can't do it and when we miserably fail and we motivate, we're still moving forward. And uh, again, that's language born in the dream. Moving forward from what? We are that. That the mother, uh, um, that mother who seems to be there, and in some ways is there, is also here. So, um, never gone, never so, you know, um, you can't, 
You can't earn her love because she is that love. Your, it, she is love. How can you earn some... Anyway. So, you know what I mean, what I'm trying to say? That you cannot buy the mother's love when the mother already loves you. Right? Even if you are horrible and even if you fall, you believe that you've fallen from the path, the Bhagavad Gita says nothing is ever lost because the mother is always there. It's our very essence. The mother is there in the criminal as well as in the saint and doesn't love the saint any more than she loves the criminal. That uh, all of this is in terms of language that uh, separates, but, and we have to talk that way, but don't let us trip ourselves up on this. I'm not good enough. I can't do it. Um, that's for Sri Ramakrishna. That's for sadhus. Um, she's us, all of us. And in each in our own way, we have to figure out uh, how to move, live our way into that realization. And she likes to. She likes that, I think. And we'll dish these, like we started out by saying, sometimes in a dream we are momentarily awake. She'll do that. Ah, here's a cookie. And we see it, but the thing is, when we see it, then we become like Sri Ramakrishna's um, parable of the story, metaphor of the thieves who know there's a treasure in the next room. Right? So she may, we may have a momentary glimpse and it may vanish again, but now that's like the treasure in the next room, and, and then we, our longing becomes naturally stronger. And we will stop at nothing to get it. So, I think we need to stop. Thank you. <laughs> Hopefully this will help, helpful.